Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Yasmin Akram. Letting all of you know that myself and my friend Philippa Dunn and I have released the second series of our podcast, We Heart Worry. Join us for hard-hitting discussions on flashing your neighbours accidentally, looking after a child's pet when they go away, and of course, that most universal of worries, a strong fear of chicken. That's We Heart Worry. Find us where you find good podcasts. The following podcast is a member of the Great Big Owl family. This will certainly have an adult theme and might well contain strong scenes of sex or violence, which could be quite graphic. It may also contain some very explicit language, which will frequently mean sexual swear words. What do you like listening to? Um... <laughs> Chart music. <laughs> Chart music. Youngsters, and welcome to the latest episode of Chart Music, the podcast that gets his hand right down the back of the settee on a random episode of Top of the Pops. I'm your host, Al Needham, and with me today are rock expert David Stubbs Hi. and Taylor Parks. Hi. What's up, cocksuckers? <laughs> what? What the fuck's this all yeah, about? I was, I was thinking of doing the whole podcast in that voice. Why? Well, plenty of other people do. And I thought if if we talk like that all the way through, we uh, might get a mention in The Guardian. Uh, Who gives a fuck about getting mentioned in The Guardian? Not me. <laughs> I know where I stand in the uh, in in the ways of the media nowadays. I'm mm. I'm provincial. They're only interested in me if I was standing outside a market talking racist mm. shit. <laughs> anyway, fuck that, boys. Mm. The pop things and the interesting things. Tell me your secrets. Sing me your songs. Ooh. Well, you know, I've done a um, couple of interviews, but unfortunately I'm not at liberty to divulge uh, what they are. But uh, Oh, God, not with the police then, I hope. <laughs> you doing all the podcast shit, David? I did a guest one, um, a, a Hackney-based uh, project, um, and it was, um, yeah, I was just sort of chatting about electronic music, blah-de-blah, you know. Again. Sort of rehashing the old material from our, our little our Nottingham gig. Yeah, exactly, yeah, quite a few of the old lines, you know, well-polished well now. You know, tried them out in Nottingham and, uh, you know... Oh, yeah. uh, You know, in the provinces. And if they can understand what you're saying, (laughs) it's all right for everyone else. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, as as, as it goes. But, But yeah, I've been sort of knocking around, rattling around on social media as ever. And I suppose the sort of... the. What was the funkiest thing that happened to me recently? Um, I did... um, I was out on Twitter and somebody had posted up... um, um, a link to this radio documentary about uh, Foucault, the uh, the French 
philosopher, the avant-garde French philosopher. Oh yeah, who um, you know wrote a book called um, you know the history of sexuality and all that kind of stuff. You know, and then so, so, so I mm. tweeted thus: must must catch up with this. I remember coming across the history of sexuality years ago, looking in the index and finding that the author hadn't even mentioned Robin Asquith. That glaring omission, oh, yeah. however, <laughs> you know, a little bit of smirk, you know, chuckle, right, chuckle, mm. nine likes. Looks at it about half an hour later, and there was a response from Robin Asquith. And he just put, <laughs> fucking glaring, <laughs> he agrees. I mean, that's magnificent. I mean, I don't know if he has his Asquith dar that, like, alert him to any mention anywhere of, you know, on social media, but it was, <laughs> it was just absolutely glorious. Worlds collide. Now, what um, he does uh, is every morning he gets up and does a Twitter search for the word Foucault. Yeah. <laughs> to keep, keep tabs on the discourse. Yeah, a few other people joined in, and yeah, he was sort of like speculating on having a shower with Foucault and stuff like that. You know, very kind of mirthsome. You know, this wonderful meld of inverted commas high and inverted commas again low culture. You know, yeah, mm. yeah he seems to have a very good sort of sense of proportion in RNA. Actually, um, I, 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 I warmed to him because he put up a photo of himself with, um, what's his name, Richard O'Sullivan from Man About the House, who's not yeah. been so well, you know, recently. And they're sitting out in the pub, sharing a pint, you know, and they're both, they're both looking good. And I thought, oh, good on you. And, um, mm. but yeah, so I thought, you know, somebody had mentioned that he's actually a pretty interesting interview. And so, mm. mindful of that, I actually went online and just keyed in Robin Asquith interview. And the very first thing that comes up is um, a piece yeah. in Left Lion, 2005, I think, by a certain Al Needham. Yeah, I, I interviewed him. Yeah, and you, and, um, you describe him as, um, you know, to anyone who's not heard of him, is imagine a Jim Davidson, you don't want to punch in the mouth, and you'll get the picture. <laughs> right. No, I was yeah. on form that day. Definitely, yeah, yeah. And it, it <laughs> seems to be around, you know, it's, it's sort of a Q&A thing, you know, asking what lures, what brings him to Nottingham, you know, as if anybody needs mm. a good reason. But um, no, um, Cradle of Pop, he was doing, yeah, he, he was doing a version of, Canterbury Tales, but set in 1976, the year of the drought, the year of punk. And the same year yeah. he was making Confessions of a Driving Instructor in one studio, and George Lucas was next door making Star Wars. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, oh, why didn't they mash them together, man? Oh, Confessions know. of a Stormtrooper. <laughs> Yeah, it's a it's a very it's a very sort of jolly interview. Definitely, it's, he's quite erudite. He's a bit he's a bit rough on poor old political correctness. He thinks it's poisoned yeah. poisoned the culture. He never forgave it for Bottle Boys not yeah. being a success. Yeah, and it, you know, and it says, he, he, apparently he says comics have to sign pieces of paper to promise they won't make jokes about certain groups. Yeah. Well, you know, um, anyway, I suspect that political correctness <laughs> generally has had bigger fish to fry than Robin Asquith, in all honesty. I, don't I think did it. ask him the, 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 the key question, which was, how did you do all those scenes and not get a bonk on? Oh, yes. And yeah. uh, he said lots of sticky tape. Ah, wow. He taped it down. Yeah. <laughs> really fascinating thing about that interview was it turns out that when he was filming all the confession series, hmm. they had to do three different sex scenes every time wow. for different markets. So there was the British one, the European one, and apparently South Africa was very... Uh, oh, yeah. Mm. Y- you had to really tape it down for that. You had to use gaffer tape. Yeah. A fascinating interview <laughs> and, a, and a very nice bloke. A, a, a pleasure talking to him, it was. Yeah, that's probably been the highlight of my year so far, I suppose. Taylor. Well, in between working on my latest movie pitch, Confessions of a Post-Structuralist. Um, I'm, I'm planning a, a new podcast of my own. It's going to be a... What? It's going to be a, an affectionate 
nostalgic look back at the first lockdown. Oh, God, fantastic, wasn't it? Wasn't it fast? <laughs> Lovely weather, chatting on Zoom, everyone banging their pots and pans. Oh, Joe Wicks, yeah. Tiger King, mm. getting a little bit tipsy in the evenings. Oh, great days. Great days. Yeah. Never mm. such innocence again. We managed, didn't we? Yeah. It's, I mean, you remember COVID? Nobody called it COVID in those days. No. It was the novel coronavirus. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, that was before the fucking novelty wore off. Um, mm. But there you go. It's, <laughs> it's getting weird now. It is getting weird this far yeah. into lockdown. I know for some people it's just been a mild contraction of their social life. Mm. But as someone who lives alone and has the old underlying conditions, it's been pretty much 12 months of total isolation. And you really learn a lot about yourself from that, but mostly useless and unwelcome information. Mm. (laughs) But I take some comfort from the fact that even now, every morning when I get up and pick out a couple of socks, I still make sure it's a pair Oh, man. Applause at the fucking doorway for that, Taylor. Do you know what I mean? I'm like an old shipwrecked rear admiral (laughs) in the jungle, like still dressing for dinner every night when he sits down to nibble on a caterpillar. Uh, (laughs) On the other hand, it's been really hard preparing for this because my creativity, man, has almost (laughs) totally dried up because I realise I don't have a formula for thinking up ideas in an empty room. They just mm. things just occur to me when I'm walking around interacting with other humans, uh, and so yeah. now mm. nothing ever occurs to me, uh, and I have no thoughts. I get good ideas on the toilet sometimes. Well, you're very lucky, David, because I, <laughs> I don't. I, I for about three months I've been walking around talking like Peter Sellers in Being There. So, <laughs> yes, I will do the next chart music. So, are you going to call this thing Corona Nostalgia? Oh, well, let's not get ahead of ourselves. <laughs> it's funny what ta- what you say, though, Taylor. I mean, I've, it's, it's alarming. First of all, I, I applaud you. Mm. I mean, actual applause there for, you know, wearing proper, you know, properly matched socks. <laughs> I haven't worn trousers for 12 months. Oh, no, David, <laughs> um, stop there now. Yeah, no. Yeah, you know. Um, but I think... What are you wearing now on your, on your lower parts? Well, I got to something. Don't worry. Yeah, you're not sitting there in your pants, are you? Just no, no, that. not quite. But I am. I am. I am wearing shorts, uh, which are Ooh. you know a touch on the manky side. But uh, I don't want to paint a picture. Really, it's it's <laughs> no. you know. It's, I I am alarming because I do. Pe- people always do those things about oh, when all this lifts and we can all meet up again for a drink or a pint together. And I'm like, and I kind of people sort of are going like, on know, as like, if it's going to be like fucking VE day with more oh, no. nurses. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I see stuff on Facebook and it's like, oh yeah, I'm going to get in there and it's going to be well. First of all, you've got a book, and then you've got a queue, and then you've mm. got this, and then you got that. And you're going to sit there for fucking 10 minutes ago, you know what? I've got nothing more to say. Mm. <laughs> I'm just going to have a, a more expensive piss up than the ones I've had every night in my fucking ass. Yeah, it's going to be so disappointing when people remember what normality is actually like. It's like, it's, I mean, you know, oh, if I know. You, you don't have to think back that yeah. far. Do you remember pounding the same filthy street every day, going somewhere that you'd rather not go, and then having to walk back again? In the rain. Mm. Uh, uh, mm. Oh, yeah. 
I mean, this is at the two and a half hour round commute. I mean, you know, we're having some Zoom drinks, you know, what's great at the end is like, see you like, bye, Doom. instant transportation, back home, yeah. you know. You think, oh, I could get these shorts off now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and to remind people just that 85% of your free time is still going to be spent completely alone in the same damn room where you've spent the last 18 months, uh, except with no excuse, um, with the knowledge mm. that, yeah, people really genuinely would rather stay in their own flat watching something on the iPlayer than spend time with you, uh, <laughs> mm. even mm. after all that's happened in the past year or hasn't happened in the past year. So essentially, I think we're just saying that we should cherish these times while they last. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, because pretty soon everything will be just as shit as it was before. There'll just be less money around. Half the places mm. that you used to like going won't be there anymore. And no one will have learned a single lesson from any of this. I think that's pretty fair to say. I don't like people trying to look on the bright side of things, basically. It just it doesn't mm. doesn't do it for me. I mean Doesn't help, does it? Ultimately mm. you've got to be realistic. What has COVID left us? Canon and little. And that <laughs> says it all. You know what I mean? And like, Very good. I, I had to think about that for a second. Very good. <laughs> and lockdown yeah. was horrendous, but at the end of the day, it was only house arrest. And people spend weeks plea bargaining for that. So <laughs> I, I don't worry. The, the worst is yet to come. I hope that doesn't make me sound negative. Oh, imagine if the next fucking pandemic means you have to stay out <laughs> for a year. You can't even go in your own fucking house, yeah. man. Oh. But, you know, Taylor talks about, uh, you know, drying the creative juices. Um, I, I, I've actually, it's not been the same for me. I've been experimenting with um, freeform poetry. Um, do you want me to, oh, I, yeah. could, no. I could read you for some now. It'd only take about 10 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I did go in there, didn't I? Ha, 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 ha. Sorry. But, but we're all jabbed up, aren't we? That's yeah, we're all news. jabbed up. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Yeah, I, I'm now, brilliant. today, this day, I'm officially, I've got the, I've been jabbed for a fortnight. So I'm, yeah. I'm safe. Well, over the other side. I got mine ages ago. Yeah, you've had your job as well, haven't you, Taylor? Yeah, I had the first one. So uh, thanks for that, rats. Uh, appreciate <laughs> yes. your sacrifice, but you guys got <laughs> us into one plague. Now you've got to get us out of another one. It's fair, it's fair. <laughs> isn't it? Although, actually, I read the other day that they they weren't actually using rats in these trials. They used Syrian hamsters. And I thought, right. these poor sods, they must have thought their luck had changed when they got out of Syria. <laughs> <laughs> Suddenly it's like, oh God, what's this? Coming here after our wheels. <laughs> but anyway, before we get stuck into the rich, creamy goodness of this episode of Top of the Pops, you know what we've got to do first and foremost? We've got to give thanks and praise to the pop-crazed youngsters who stepped up to the pay window and gave us a little bit on Patreon. And this month in the $5 section are Philip Desmond, Chris Durban, Debbie Smith, Tim Ward, Liam Daly, Gerontophile, Paul Milnes, Richard Leavesley, Chris Evans, Simon Adebise, Tim Nyland Jones, and Greg, or is it Greg? I'm not sure, so I'll say it both. Greg Stevenson and Greg Stevenson. Thank you so much, babies. Oh, 
Excellent people, one and all. Fucking hell, Simon had a there. Special message to all the pop-crazed youngsters in the Oswald Correctional Facility. My tits are firm and round. <laughs> <laughs> and in the $3 section this month, we have Brendan MacArthur, Helen Hookin, Dan Island, John Wellington, Lucille Bluff, Lucy Healing, Michael Cook, and Rick Sharp. To all those people... Mm, we love you. You pay our rent. <laughs> what fucking wonderful people Couldn't they agree are. More. Couldn't All agree of more. them. Yeah. And a big shout to the one dollar Patreon people who we, we don't mention enough, but thank you. Mm. And apart from giving themselves a well earned pat on the back for supporting chart music, they get to tinker and a tankle and a fiddle and a faddle with the chart music top ten. Shall we have it, gentlemen? Yes, yes. Hit the fucking music! We've said goodbye to James Galway's flute of VD, <laughs> Rennie out of the Stone Roses and Renato. <laughs> And the boogie woogie bugle boys of Quality Street, which means one up, five down, one non mover, and three new entries. Down one place from number nine to number ten, Saxon finds a general. It's a three place drop from number six to number nine for CFAX Data Blast. Last week's number three. This week's number eight, Jar Waddy Wadder. <laughs> He's back on the rise from number eight to number seven, Jeff Sex. Yeah. And firmly stuck at number six for another week, here comes Jism. Into the top five, and it's a one place drop for Bomber Dog. Last week's number one has dropped all the way to number four. Oh. Rock expert David Stubbs! <laughs> Into the top three and the first new entry, the bent cunts who aren't fucking real. <laughs> Straight in at number two, concerned mother of Exeter, which means... The highest new entress, straight in at number one, Jesus Price. <laughs> oh, what a chart that is! Fucking hell! Oh, well, obviously, Jesus Price, that's got to be a Welsh Marilyn Manson, mm. isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> yeah that was, um, if I remember rightly, uh, Price's dad's original suggestion of what to call him. What to christen him, mm. if you will. <laughs> Yeah, oh, yes. I was quite impressed when I heard that because um, I don't think I mentioned this before. Uh, my dad's original idea of what to christen me was Merlin. No! Yeah, and he told me Merlin. this years ago. Yeah, I never questioned him on it, so I never worked out whether that was as in the Arthurian magician Ooh. or whether it was as in Merlin Reese, yeah, yeah. soon to be <laughs> Northern Ireland secretary and later home secretary. I figured it must be uh, the magician because mm. who the fuck would name their kid after <laughs> Merlin Reese? Um, <laughs> but, um, yeah, I was thinking, like, wouldn't that have been fucking great if when we were working at Merlin Maker we'd been Jesus and Merlin? <laughs> yeah. And people would have taken this even less seriously than they did. Mm. Were you always going to be David, David? 
Yeah, and I would have been Julia if a woman. Yeah, yeah. So was Price's dad called God? <laughs> I've got to chuck in my bit of news, which was that finally, after over a year, my mum's moved out of Nottingham. She was chucking out a load of pictures, and it's like, Mum, what the fuck are you doing? I love them. And one of them, it was this big kind of like black and white portrait thing, and it had folded over. And I opened it up. My mum says, oh, you know who that is, don't you? And I said, yeah. It was, uh, I call him me Uncle Alan. But he was actually the best mate of me great-grandma's best mate. And she, my mum says, yeah, yeah, he's the person who you named after. And then she just looked at me and said, yeah, he was a right cunt. And I just thought, oh, cheers, <laughs> mum. <laughs> you decided to name me after somebody you didn't like. Brilliant. <laughs> you, so you need him to use fairly fruity language with each other. You're not, you know, this is all... Yes, yeah. yes, yeah. yes. Salt of the earth, working-class stocks, warlike bastards. Well, yeah. yeah the family yeah. that swears together cares together. <laughs> yeah, I always always envied that because when I was because the thing about being lower middle class, the, you get heirs, right? So it's yeah. like you, you can't swear in the family yeah. house, right? Yeah. Okay. So it, I remember when I was about twelve, I got that book about the jam by Paolo Hewitt. Uh, oh, beat, beat concerto. concerto. Yeah, and it's got all. Paul Weller and his mum and dad in it, all effing and jeffing. And I yes. remember thinking, wow, imagine that freedom. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> that must be, um, it would be worth having an outside toilet just to be able to say, <laughs> fuck you know, in front of your dad. Mm. Yeah. The, the strongest words my mum ever used were, rot me old boots. <laughs> and, you know, <laughs> that was their equivalent of cunt in hell fire. Yeah. <laughs> I love that term, effing and jeffing. Mm. If Jesus had been called Jeff, I think he'd have been a lot more relatable to, to the modern world, don't you think? Yeah. Oh, did you hear about Jeff? He healed loads of blind people and made them walk. Yeah, yeah. Fucking top lad. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> concerned mother of Exeter. They, they, I'm getting severe Lena Martell vibes off that one. Mm, mm. I don't know. All one of those sort of like modern bands that have names like, you know, Black Country, New Road. And uh, mm. pigs, 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 and stuff like that. And mm. you know, yeah. So let's just have a name that people find hard to say. The world's really gone dry, hasn't it, on band names nowadays? Poor sods. <laughs> mm. Yeah, it's uh, getting a bit desperate. The bent cunts who aren't fucking real. Obviously, they're going to play support to Seven Days Jankers at a Civic Hall in 1973. <laughs> <laughs> So, if you want to join those beautiful new pop craze youngsters and have your name mangled in my lovely Nottingham mouth, you know what you got to do. you got to step up to the keyboard. you got to put your fingers on it. you got to mash, mash, mash patreon.com slash chart music and you pledge whatever you like. Thank you. Mm. Oh, no. Hang on. I'll do it properly. Like they're doing them charity ads. Thank you. <laughs> Somewhere a washed up music journalist is waiting. <laughs> <laughs> this episode, Pop Craze Youngsters, takes us all the way back to October the 23rd, 1980. Yes, it's the Aventis, and yes, it's a time when anything seems to be possible in pop music. Punk has set off a chain reaction, the mod revival is still going, two-tone is still dominant, there's a wave of cross-pollination in America... And we're going to get absolutely none of that in this episode of Top of the Pops. We might as well put it out right now. This is not vintage Top of the Pops at all, is it? Yeah. This ain't the kind of episode of Top of the Pops that you keep in your cellar for special occasions, is it? Yeah, it's one of those 
almost one of those punk never happened episodes. Yeah, it's one yeah. of those nothing ever happened episodes. Mm. Yeah, yeah. But it is an episode you might choose to show someone to illustrate a point. Mm. But I think we'll come to that in a bit. Top of the Pops is still a programme in transition, uh, making a lot of changes after its um, hard reset, if you will. And some of those changes are going to stick. Some of them will be discarded. And some of them are just plain fucking batshit and never used again. And in this episode, we're going to see a prime, if not the prime example of the latter. Oh, yes. Why does Top of the Pops feel the need to change itself? Is it because it's a new decade? In a sense, it's still the, the, the dark ages of Top of the Pops, the, the dark rafters to which I'm constantly alluding. You know, it's still very much got that sense that it's just a sort of a rationed portion of light in an essentially kind of dark and actually rather cruel world at this point. But, uh, mm. yeah... Yeah, I mean, this is it. It can feel like sort of yeah, just just bunging things into the mix, seeing what might work. Yeah, there's a lot of sort of thrashing around for novelty and just, mm. in fact, making things work less well. Which is you know what happens mm. a lot when you have any kind of reshuffle or new broom, you know. But no one has any respect for Top of the Pops at this point, or they do, but it's the wrong kind of respect. You know what I mean? It's mm. an institution. It's good old Top of the Pops, but what actually makes it a great show or, you know, a potential, or an intermittently great show, that stuff is not respected at all because no. it's not understood because 25 years after the emergence of the teenager, uh, most of the BBC still haven't got a handle on it, you know, and everything's, everything's aimed at the sensibilities of mm. your parents or your little brother and sister as though the teenage or the young adult audience are just viewers with one foot in both mm. camps and, you know, hopefully everything will just meet in the middle. But it doesn't mm. work like that. Yeah, there's still the sense that it's a family show, yeah. yeah. Just, mm. Sometimes you think with Top of the Pops, look, it's fucking simple. Just point the camera at the band or the singer or whatever, just point the camera at the acts and never mind all this fanning yeah. about, but all of the kind of fanning about, apart from sort of, you know, giving us kind of tremendous grist, you know, in these episodes, it's obviously, you know, it's some sort of attempt at existence justifying on their part. It'd be too simple just to kind of, you know, they're like, you know, so the presenters have to sort of, you know, come up with what they laughingly regard as their dry quips or whatever, you know, they have to have kind of present you know, overall presentational ideas, mm. you know, the producer has to kind of like leave their mark, you know, in some way or other, you know, with certain innovations and changes. None of it is, it's all bollocks. So shall we get stuck in then? Yeah. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. 
That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, I'm Justin. And I'm Lucy. And together we are the hosts of Plenty Questions. It's a very straightforward general knowledge quiz. We ask you 20 questions, one after the other, five second gap in between, and you shout the answers out. And then you tweet us to let us know how you've got on. See if you can get 20 out of 20. No one has so far, but that's because we haven't started doing it yet. Mm, but we will. Uh, and there's also going to be some fiendish brain teasers. So join us for Plenty, Plenty questions. questions. Let's go! Radio 1 News. In the news this week... Iran has abruptly broken off negotiations with the USA over the release of the US Embassy hostages, allegedly due to Ronald Reagan secretly having a word with them in order to fuck up Jimmy Carter's chances a week before the presidential election. The chip panic cunt. (laughs) Meanwhile, the Iraqi army has captured the Iranian port of Shah one month into the Iran-Iraq war. Paul McCartney and Wings rescue a baby from a pram crushed under a car as they were coming back from a band rehearsal in Kent. Priscilla Presley has become a Scientologist and launched legal action against Colonel Tom Parker, leading other Presley family members to suspect that Elvis's money is going to be funneled towards Ron Hubbard and his mentalist family. Mary Whitehouse has reported the National Theatre's production of the Howard Brenton play The Romans in Britain to the police because it features non-stop cock-out action and a Roman centurion carving up an ancient Briton's arse before bombing him. (laughs) The Division 1 match between Aston Villa and Brighton and Hove Albion is cancelled when both teams are prevented by their owners from taking the field without their sponsored shirts on as the game was being filmed for sports night. Rod Stewart has been pulled out of his hotel bed and given a severe bollocking by Hamburg police after his backing band were thrown out of three different bars in the red light area for, quote, rowdiness. It's a bit unfair on Rod. He wasn't doing no. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, well, yeah, It's not yeah, their yeah. teacher. Yeah. Willie Whitelaw, the Home Secretary, advises the courts not to jail anyone if they can help it due to overcrowding in prisons during an industrial dispute with prison officers. One week after the resignation of Jim Callahan as leader of the Labour Party, Dennis Healy has been pegged as the 4-5 on favourite by Ladbrokes, with the left of the party battling to convince Michael Foote to throw his hat into the ring. A traffic warden in York gets reprimanded for ticketing a vacuum cleaner that was left in the road. (laughs) But the big news this week is that the Daily Mirror is the first newspaper to bandy about the term New Romantics in an article about Chrysalis signing the hottest new band in the country, Spandau Ballet. Headline, coming up posers, a new look group hits the big time. It can take as long as five hours to get into the right gear for a night at the Electro Disco. For posing, 
often in bizarre and elaborate clothes, is just as important as their favourite pop music to fans of Spandau Ballet, the latest young cult group to hit the big time. The five handsome guys who are Spandau Ballet always stay a well-pressed pleat ahead of their admirers. Now, after clinching what may well be a record-breaking deal for a virtually unknown group, they are ahead of their rivals too. Leader and Sinatra fan Tony Adler, 19, explained why fashion is as important as music to the leaders of the latest pop cult. We are not like the punks and mods, he said. We don't all believe in wearing the same thing. Our act is a sort of applause to the audience. The band and their fans go to little-known designers, as well as chain stores and jumbo sales for the gear to give them the latest look. At the moment, it is slightly Puerto Rican. Balloon trousers with crossover crotch and string vests and hand-embroidered shirts. Oh, yeah. They say romance is back in style. I say it never went out. I always like it when the press get to grips, you know, with things like, well, like the new romantic thing at the time. I think it was some, when Depeche Mode was starting out, and um, I think it was like, I don't know, the Basildon Bugle or whatever, and the headline was, Posh Clobber could clinch it for Mode. <laughs> and it did. I mean, Posh Clobber did clinch it for Mode. That's the weird thing. And um, Spandau as well. I mean, you know, at the time, mm. people probably imagine, even was writing these things, that you know, they've the, the sort of like flunkyish things that would be kind of away in six months. But they both had remarkable durability in their own ways. I can't see this catching on at school, though, David. No. I mean, well, the, I the, the local market ain't going to be selling balloon trousers with crossover crotch anytime soon. And, mm. you know, let's be honest, balloon trousers is just a nice way of saying in continence pants <laughs> i mean the thing is round about that time whatever you were into the market had always sought you up they'd give you the sort of the baseline whether it was a leather jacket or a denim jacket or an arrington or a parker or something like that and then you had your own modifications like patches and badges and and you could get away with it at school you know you could go into school with a safety pin on your school blazer or you know you could turn your tie around to make it skinnier but you're not going to be allowed into school wearing a ruff, are no, you? No, no, no. <laughs> or, or painting a snake on your arm. That's that's not going to no, happen. That was for the weekend. And they really haven't thought this through, have they? There weren't many new romantics at our school because it was just so fucking hard to get into. I mean, mm. you'd see a couple of lads with a visage badge for a week or two. Mm. And eventually them shirts that buttoned down the side, they ended up in the market. But by that time, it was way too late. It's time had passed. The thing about being a punk back then, it wasn't like, you know, the, the guys you see in the kind of King's Road, Covent Garden, on the postcards or whatever, or these geezers with enormous great Mohicans touting for um, 50p to have their photo taken with them. You know, yeah. you look back at the photos, and whether it's the kids or the bands, whatever, they're just wearing what basically looks like scruffy school uniform most of the time, you know, big knotted ties or whatever. Yeah. Uh, the bassists in the bands are usually wearing flares. So it wasn't really that difficult to get the look. You just needed one or two little modifications, really. The same with being a mod. I mean, all he really needed was a parker and a few badges and you were away wear it over your school uniform yeah and you were a mod a bit trickier really to sort of you know to do all the kind of requirements of dolling up as a new romantic especially in a school context on the cover of melody maker this week fuck knows i couldn't find it on the cover of record mirror this week phil linert with two kimonoed up japanese ladies on the cover of smash hits the police 
The number one LP in the UK at the moment is Zenyatta Mondata by The Police. And over in America, the number one single is Another One Bites the Dust by Queen. And the number one LP, The Game by Queen. So, boys, what were we doing in October of 1980? I was still at primary school. And uh, simultaneously so precocious and so innocent that I would look at the individual finger plectrums worn by the finger-picking folk guitar-playing music teacher, who was a sort of a sporty, short-haired lady who also took the girls for PE. Uh, And I'd think, why doesn't she just grow out her fingernails? Ah, Sweet innocence, (laughs) but observant and nosy. And I think that's partly why I am. I spent Mm. my childhood asking questions you're not meant to think of with answers that I couldn't understand. What kind of music were you into? Uh, just the music that I heard. That was the music that I liked. Right. Actually, what was about 1980? It really, I got properly into music just after Christmas 1980 because uh, the death of John Lennon was a way into the Beatles mm. for me because suddenly I started hearing Beatles music. Yeah. David? I had just turned 18 at this point, and I was a very intense young man. I abstained from alcohol. I mean, I had a few drinks. Um, I went on a Catholic school trip to Lourdes early that year and got pissed every night there. (laughs) But it didn't really take. Deeply spiritual moment. I was religious. Um, You know, I'm a signed-up atheist and all that these days, but not then. I was keenly religious. Mm. I, I think it conflated with my sense of moral, not exactly superiority, but, um, mm. all right, superiority. <laughs> was it not an anti-rockist I, Yes, and I suppose in a way it was a kind of anti-rockist thing. Um, there's a lot of heathens in the rock world, as we know, and I kind of <laughs> pitted myself against their ilk. I was very, very pleased when Bob Dylan, early that year, um, announced his conversion to Christianity and released Slow train coming i thought great you know somebody with great credibility in rock is on the christian track Mm. um you know we're on the way the floodgates will open and i bought that album and i put up with all those weedy mark knopfler guitar solos (laughs) the other thing i belatedly got into post-punk suicide joy division wire as well as your sun Mm. and stockhausen's of course your staple fare for an 18 year old leeds lad but the only money i had to spend on records was Humiliatingly, I still had a paper round at 18. Um, there were all these little um, 12, 13-year-old kids snapping around my knees oh, at the news man. agents at 6.30 in the morning to collect the papers. Um, also, my dinner money. Um, so I would have bought something like, say, Slugging for Jesus by Cabri Voltaire back then with my Tuesday dinner money and missed a meal that day. I had an enormous great fringe, a Phil Oakey-style fringe, and I'm convinced that the follicular strain that caused accounts for my early onset of Widow's Peak and my present condition. <laughs> I also had a horrible little tash, so everyone said, hey, you look like mature, you. Oh, I mean, perhaps they were saying, you look mature, you. Mature, <laughs> mature, anyway. You know, both good. Um, I was also at the height of listening to John Peel every night, or the Velvet Underpants there, and being made, really, by NME. So I had this monastic intensity about me. I lived in my bedroom. Mm. I didn't go out anywhere. Were you watching Top of the Pops at the time, both of you? Yeah, I would probably have gone down most weeks, um, then gone straight back upstairs again, gone down, watched it in the hope of some sort of personal epiphany or perhaps something that came through that might enlighten the masses. That would have been um, equally as good, if not better. I couldn't work out why most of the 1980 Top of the Pops were unfamiliar to me until I remembered Mm. that my Cubs was on 
Thursday nights. Oh. So I missed it for most of the night you know, until I thought, fuck the fucking Cubs. <laughs> and at which point I started watching it again. Round about this time, I'm still grieving Forrest getting knocked out of the European Cup to CSKA fucking Sofia three weeks mm. previously. And I was at that game. And I remember just gripping hold of the cage at the front of the Trent 10 with my tears dripping off the bars as that goal went in. <laughs> but I was wearing a CSKA Sofia badge that I got from the programme shop I was working at at the time, which, which formed part of the clankening I was sporting at all times, along with me jam badges and stuff. Full-on pop kid around about this time. It was the first time that I properly started to investigate record shops on my own reconnaissance. My Saturday mornings would consist of getting up, watching Tiswas and Swap Shop and flicking between the two of them, making sure that the, the one of the two pairs of jeans I had that wasn't flared was dry and ready to go out in. And then I'd go to Fox Records in Vicky Centre, which was part organ shop, part record shop. Mm. And then I'd go down to Virgin Records just down the road because they just installed a, a TV wall, which was just a, a bank of tellies stacked on top of each other with loads of headphones. And you could stand there and watch the same pop videos over and over and over again. There was, I think they had like a 50-minute to one-hour run. And the only videos I can remember were Anywhere You Want It by Journey, Missing Words by The Selector, and right at the end, Breaking the Law by Judas Priest. And I remember it was hosted by Tommy Vance, of course. Mm-hmm. I'd spend an hour or two watching that, and then I'd go down to Broadmarsh Centre and hang around the HMV, which was tiny, but it was just absolutely rammed with records. And it was that time when you just stand in a record shop and just think, fucking hell, what, what would it be like to just go, you know what, I want to play that. I want to hear this. You know, I want to hear everything. I would, I'd have been going to record shops at this time. I was really intimidated about 1978 by shops like Virgin Records or whatever. You know, I thought it'd be like kind of, um, you know, going into some sort of den of punk and that, you know, that, that I'd be kind of sneered at by the um, assistants or whatever. So about a couple of years later, when I was really into my sort of avant-garde stuff, I'd, it was almost like I took a revenge by going into all these places like Jumbo Records in Leeds and ordering like a mega avant-garde stuff, you know, which they've not even heard of, you know, even the store clerks haven't heard of it. Yeah. Ugh. Like the Art Bears and things like that and James Blood Older and stuff. And they're like, the Art Bears? Who are them? <laughs> the Art Bears? Are you sure? <laughs> oh, yes, 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 yes. Yeah. And it was spoiled one time. One of my friends coming on one of these kind of trips and, and, um, he just sort of said to the assistant, um, yeah, my friend here would like the most obscure record in the shop, please. I was 12 at the time and that's a dangerous time mm. when it comes to pop music because you could go either way. Mm. I was proper modded up, religiously buying every single two tone release and everything the jam put out. But I'd also bought Zenyatta Mondata by the police. And for the third time, I realised that the police were a singles band. And that, that was the last police album I ever bought. But, you know, it's that time when you're just open to anything. You know, if, if someone at one of these record shops says, oh, look, here's a copy of Axe Attack that's just lying about tech it, I would have took it home and played it. Yeah. And because it was one of the few bits of vinyl I had, I play it often. Mm. Even worse, that Journey album that had just come out, if someone had given that to me for my birthday or whatever, I'd have listened to it. And God knows what state I'd be in nowadays. God, yeah, yeah. It's frightening. Yeah, you'd honestly believe that Journey were a good group. And, oh, no, I, I would still stick up for Journey, just purely based on a, on that chance encounter. <laughs> you would. It's what people would do. Yeah. I'm not misremembering this, am I? You gentlemen are both slightly older than me. It was mm. a bleak year, 1980. It was a, a chilly, bleak year. Mm. I'm not sure there was a single day 
1980 that wasn't damp and overcast uh, or a a single square yard of concrete anywhere in Britain that wasn't stained by something <laughs> like mm. piss or blood or just 10 years of English weather. And the mm. height of excitement was finding out they'd put a The Invaders machine in your local chippy. Mm. <laughs> so people generally look back at years and they get a hugely oversimplified idea of what was going on in any given year. But I think... 1980 is an exception. Mm. It really was bleak and grey. I mean, not that in some ways it wasn't a better time than now, blah, blah, blah. There mm. was still plenty of freedoms flapping open and there was some kind of culture and there was that that unpolluted simplicity of consciousness where, you know, a fella might just decide he's going to have a break. Have a, Just have a break and just go and check into a 17th century hotel pub in Berkshire somewhere and spend three days in there with a thick novel and no telly, just living on roast pork and neat brandy in a wine glass down in the <laughs> dining room, you know, and staring out the window at Victoria Wine and the car park that used to be the Market Square. And after three days of that, you'd feel like you'd recharged your batteries and could drive back to London, you know, three days of silence, but for ambient sound and Nowadays, a weekend like that would induce panic were it even possible. Do you know what I mean? Mm. But I think there's something to be said for that kind of empty space and and borderline boredom, you know, where at least you're not so perpetually distracted that you can't feel reality moving through you and reminding you of who you really are and, and how quickly time is passing, you know, which I think was probably useful. It's funny you're talking about yeah, pubs there. I mean, one of the things that probably did put me off pubs at that particular time is that the ones around Leeds, certainly, it was just all, or Leeds, the outlying villages, whatever, it was just all sort of horse brasses, low and brow, and always, always a soundtrack of like classics on 45s. Do you remember that thing where they like, diddly, 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 yeah. with a little 4-4 beat running underneath? That was everywhere. It was just piped in perpetually. Yeah. Is this the future? I thought. Just bringing a bit of quality to pop music. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but it was a strangely anxious and uncertain time wasn't it oh, it was oh like, very but, much know, very much just, and it still looks it i mean i was just about a week ago i was watching the kids bbc serial break in the sun which uh, was made in 1980 it's about a, a a little girl from deptford who runs away on a boat with a middle-class theater group because her dad right her dad is terry the chef from faulty towers and Oh, say no more then. And as kids' TV drama goes, it's really good. Uh, But it's not, you watch it and you notice it's not like emotionally deep, like that sort of programme would be if they made it now. And it's not sort of super brutal, like it would have been if they'd made it in the 70s. There's just a sort Mm. of melancholy and chronic emptiness to it, which feels really specific to the time. There's this, captures that sort of, that kind of quiet, brooding anxiety of being a child in 1980, that in, in a society that wasn't completely terrible, but was just sort of chilly. There's a lot of shots mm. of this girl just staring blankly into the middle distance with a downturned mouth 
And I was thinking, yeah, that's how I remember. I mean, as an 18-year-old, I spent most of 1980 pretty much shitting myself about the prospects of nuclear war. Oh, yeah. I remember, yeah. like, that lordship, I remember thinking, like, well, if the world's... Yeah, I'll, I'll get to go on this trip if um, the world's still around in three or four weeks' time. It was, like, really not... <laughs> yes. you know, really sort of hard to think of, like, anything more than a few... You know, think, oh, we get through the next few months, well, that'd be all right, you know. And that was a widespread feeling, you know, talking about, like, Reagan and Carter and all that kind of stuff, you know. You've got this kind of nutter in the White House, whatever. And you did think that, like, it was going to be like Dr. Strangelove, you know, yee Oh, you know, like, what's his name? Slim Pickens, yeah. you know, astride the uh, bomb, you know. Like, uh, Reagan's on the verge of being That's elected. right, yes, he's Reagan's president-elect, yeah. But this is, we kind of know it's on the way at this point, I suppose, October, yeah. It's it's, yeah. it's all impending. Yeah, and the, and the Iran-Iraq war's just kicked off. Yeah, I mean, that was absolutely terrifying. That's the kind of thing that's a plot device in threads, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I didn't give a shit about that at the time. I just remember seeing that sort of uh, tan-coloured map they used to use on the nine o'clock news and thinking, well, yeah. they fight, look, Iran, Iraq, it's almost the same. Like, yeah. how can, can they really be that different? <laughs> they're, they're only one letter apart. <laughs> oh, I remember actually not being able to hand in a, a school essay. And my excuse, and it was a genuine one, is that I was scared about nuclear war. <laughs> and the teacher, you know, a great administration says, like, nothing you can do about it. It's the human condition. So that made me feel even worse. <laughs> well, chaps, it's around about this time that we dip into a section of the music press from this week. So uh, shall we do that now with the NME? Because obviously I couldn't get the Melody Maker. Yeah, yeah 1980, it'll be better anyway. Yeah. Hmm. So this time I've gone for the NME from October the 25th, 1980. On the cover... Toya Wilcox, sitting on a chair backstage with her feet pushed against a door. Shame there was a door in the room at all. (laughs) In the news, Talking Heads have announced their first gigs in the UK in early December, a mere two shows. The first one is at Hammersmith Palais, and the second venue, obviously selected for the benefit of provincial fans who don't want to travel so far, is at Hammersmith Odeon. (laughs) You two are expected to be the support band. The British phonographic industry's six-week inquest into the allegations made by World in Action about chart-fixing concluded them deciding that there should be no expulsions, no fines, no reprimands and no legal charges and a round of Judy Zook satin tour jackets for everyone. <laughs> I hope World in Action were forced to make a public apology as well. The specials will not be playing at a CND demo in Trafalgar Square this Saturday as originally planned due to the Department of Environment not allowing them to use a loud enough PA. However, they will be joining Ian Jury and the Blockheads, the Skids and Madness in a two-week series of charity gigs at the Hope in Anchor to raise money for bedding and cover heating costs for the Oldens. The only ones, John Cooper Clark, Pauline Murray and the Invisible Girls, The Damned, Tom Robinson's new band Sector 27, Bad Manners, The Rumour, The Selector and The Revillos are also pitching in. Fucking hell, that's pretty decent sent you bedding as previously reported chrysalis records have won the battle for the hottest unsigned band in the country spandar ballet and have tied them to a long-term worldwide deal their debut single to cut a long story short comes out the week after next outbreak of robert elms disease the dance (laughs) of perfection But the body snatchers are no more having split up into two separate entities, one of which would become the Bell Stars. 
Oh, yeah, I'm not going to believe that from the MSM. I'll wait, I'll wait until <laughs> Q confirms it. Thanks. Oh, right, fucking dear. hell, yeah, Jenny Bellstar. There are all these minor 80s pop stars who went mental, just <laughs> like previous pop stars. Mm. No one would have noticed it if it hadn't been for social media. It's like it's now mm. the only way to keep tabs on the icicle works and who the secret Jewish world government have bumped off now for getting too close to the truth. <laughs> Inside the paper, well, Nick Kent drops in on AM Records' big hope for the 80s, Chaz Jankel, formerly of the Blockheads, who's just signed a seven album deal with them. Kent notes that the Blockheads are already going off the boil with their latest single, I Wanna Be Straight, but Jankel claims that Jury wrote more of their collaborations than he did, talks about the time he kicked Jury out of a recording session because he was fucking about, mentions that he left the Blockheads because he didn't have any time to do his own thing, and they're all still good mates. Seven album deal. Chaz Jankel, God, I don't remember much more than that. Chaz Jankel was fantastic. I mean, you know, that that funk element that... Meanwhile, Adrian Thrill spends an afternoon in a grotty pub in Leeds to talk to James Allen, the guitarist of what he calls one of the most promising groups of 1980, Girls at Our Best. Nothing much of interest is said. (laughs) Yeah, but they were great girls at our best. The only thing Mm. that let them down a bit was their roots in that earnest lead scene. Of the late 70s, mm. uh, which may be why nothing of interest was said. Very well-intentioned, but sometimes a drag on pizzazz. But they made some really good records, girls at our best. Like, uh, what do you recommend? Uh, fast Boyfriends uh, or Warm Girls. Getting Nowhere Fast. Yeah, it's, they're all in that sort of mm. sardonic and slightly shoddy style that was mm. big at the time. Uh, but mm. they're, they're really good. I think... I think some of them genuinely did end up working on some kind of play bus for disadvantaged children, which is funny because if you say, what do you reckon this group did after this group? That would probably be quite high on your list of suggestions and good for them. Vivian Goldman nips over to New York with a chat with James Blood Ulmer. He says he's surprised to be regarded as the leader of the so-called jazz punk movement, but he properly rates Public Image Limited. Ah, James Blood Older there, David. Well, there you are. The man who brought you to the dance at Melody Yes, Maker. that's right. Oh, absolutely. The wider the flares, the badder the funk. Charles Shaw Murray goes round Polystyrene's oh. house in Fulham to see what she's up to. She says that she got X-ray specs out of her system by reading loads of books about psychology and listening to Aretha Franklin. She's completely out of touch with the bands of today. She's recording under the name Polystyrene because it was part of the deal with United Artists and her LP Translucence will be out soon. Just to say, if anybody's not seen the documentary that just came out, um, I'm a cliche. Is it good? It's it's excellent, yeah. yeah. Oh, good. And Paul Morley goes backstage at the Royal Court Theatre for a four-page interview with Toya, who's currently starring in the play Sugar and Spice, where she gets to twist a broken bottle into some lad's groin and rip his genitals out at the end. Do you think that's like a subtle comment on something? Mm. She wants your genitals to be free. (laughs) 
going to turn your genitals upside down. <laughs> she says that she can't understand why her name is appearing on leather jackets between Crass and Adam and the Ants because her music is jazz-based. Yeah, <laughs> yeah Oscar Peterson there, definitely, yeah. If the media tried to paint her as the new Debbie Harry, she'd shave her head and start gobbing on the elderly. She might be going to Hollywood soon. She likes punching groupies in the face. And her idea of a good time is, quote, seeing a world revolution and nobody knowing what to do when everyone dumps the cars and starts looting. Someone like you, Morley, will be the first to go when that happens. It'll threaten me, but I'll enjoy it very much. Don't worry, I've got my fair share of Tommy guns stashed away. <laughs> I'm waiting. Yeah, it's funny. Um, you know, I I really kind of thought Toy was an idiot, but that's completely turned me around. All that. <laughs> what an inspiring. It's just okay. like someone like you, Morley, will be the first to go when that happens. A revolution. I mean, you, know, you think about it. It's an actual revolution. You think probably. The emphasis will be on, like, perhaps the royals, the bankers, you know, the politicians. No, no, the first people near the top of the list are going to be slightly impenetrable music journalists. It's, I love that. It's just, I would just say anything. It doesn't matter. It's just the mm. business of pop music. It's all just yeah, yeah. top layer nonsense. You know, nobody's going to ask mm. you to explain in, in what way your music is jazz based you could just say <laughs> it you know yeah posh, yeah, yeah. posh tory amdram actress is really quite enjoyable mm. a violent world revolution just say anything doesn't matter it's just a scam mm. this is it. it does it sounds like a kind of like gobby punk auto generator actually yeah yeah, you don't need to think or make an effort. We're just trying to make some money here. And according to teasers, the gossip section at the back of the paper, half the audience for Sugar and Spice are militant feminists who cheer Toya when her character coats down men, and the other half consists of blokes who want to see Cassandra out of Only Fools and Horses in the nip. <laughs> I remember going to uh, a lot of plays of that ilk when I was a teenager with my drama class and everything. I remember coming out of one and my mate turning around to me and saying, fucking hell, feminist theatre's great. You always get to see some tits. (laughs) The singles reviews. Well, this week's singles are reviewed by Julie Burchill. Mm -hmm. Who spends the first 200 words by stating she only likes the Sex Pistols when Johnny Rotten was in them and Tamla Motown up to 1976 and how she despises the term Rock's Rich Tapestry. Consequently, because it's 1980, there is no single of the week. Oh, it feels feels weird to agree wholeheartedly with the whole <laughs> of a sentence written by Julie Birch. Well, having said that, I mean, it's, you know, I only like the sexes when Johnny Rotten was in them, you know, unpopular opinion. <laughs> the biggest single this week, just like Starting Over by John Lennon, draws comparisons with Jerry Monroe, who won Opportunity Knocks 10 years ago with his maudlin pub sing-alongs. So much for McCartney writing the slop and Lennon writing the shocking rockers, she says. John Lennon either needs to be put away, if this record is meant to be good, or wants to be written off if the dyeness of this dirge is meant to be intentional. My guess is that he's happy in his house husband niche and did this merely to dissuade people who ask him when he's coming back to the studio to lay down some new tracks. Meanwhile, Elkie Brooks with all her looks, gets a coat down for her new single, Dance Away. Just the other night, I saw the younger Elkie Brooks on TV lurching about like Joplin's most promising pupil. Now she seems to go about licking Petula Clark's old ashtrays. 
She's not keen on Give Me an Inch by Hazel O'Connor. Ever since punk, the media has longed to fawn over a token wild youth, only it could never be a real punk. Too fine, too sharp, too much edge. It had to be a young person who would talk bullshit, but would put career before anything else. The media picked up on Jimmy Purser, Toya Wilcox, Ian Page, Phil Daniels. It dropped them all for Hazel. Her looks, a sheer Wurzel gummage, meets the Michelin man. And her singing style is one which Lena Lovage made into an attractive novelty about 18 months ago. When it comes to obedience, doing and saying everything that's expected of her, Hazel O'Connor makes Marie Osmond look like Valerie Solanus. Properly lumping on Toya Wilcox is the real deal, the enemy, aren't they? Mm, mm. I Know Corrida by Chaz Jankel and Flight 19 by B.A. Cunterson get lumped together because while the former had a hand in the blockhead's finest moments, the latter, according to Birchall, is shaking jury. I Know Corrida, harmless. Flight 19, it's sad when a shallow person is set on being serious. Pete Shelley discovers that the only thing worse than losing love is losing the ability to write insistent stainless steel songs about it, says Birchall about Strange Thing by the Buzzcocks. The band do a passable impression of a leaden sloth hurrying to keep an appointment at the taxidermists. Buggles seem to like writing songs about popular commodities suddenly and brutally dropped by a bored public, she says about their new single, Else Tree. Their next song should be called Buggles. Think about it, man. Yeah. While Birchall likes Dave Edmonds for Queen of Hearts and Nick Lowe for having a dad who killed loads of people in World War II, that's being anti-Nazi, you liberal creeps. Some things never change. (laughs) She's not keen on Teacher Teacher by Rockpile. Good old boys make bad old bands. The old sailor does his usual impersonation of a foghorn with its jaws wired together, slopping up his putrid, pathetic Pap for the mug masses, comments Birchall on Where Did We oh, Go Wrong? He was doing so well. It's, I mean, as soon as you mm. see the word pap and the word masses, masses yeah, exactly. in the same sentence yeah. in a music review, you know mm. that the person writing it either is a buffoon or is carrying the launch code of buffoonery that is just waiting yeah. for his moment. And the alliteration is also a kind of uh, yeah, putrid, pathetic pap. For the mug masses. <laughs> and out of a ton of re-release singles on EP, she says that she likes Dave D, Dozy Beaky, Mick and Titch, hates Backman, Turner Overdrive, Esther and Abby Afarim and Kraftwerk. Sarah Vaughan and Billy Eckstein could teach Ian Curtis's Corpse a Thing or 30 about music and, quote, anyone who was the proud possessor of a brain in the early 70s already has a copy of You Can Do Magic by Lime and Family Cooking. Oh, yeah, proud possessor of a brain. You see how easy Mm. it was to get rich in the 80s. (laughs) It's not a lie, what they Mm. say. It wasn't just city boys and tycoons. It was these people (laughs) complaining about everything Mm. while... Well, £50 notes spill out of their pockets, you know what I mean? And the, the <laughs> publishing and broadcast industries kneel before them crying, name your prize, let's at least do lunch. I mean, it's. Uh, I'm not saying my singles pages when I was, what, 
22, I guess, something like that she'd have been. I'm not saying mine were any better, but at least that fact is fairly reflected in my subsequent fortunes. And at least I improved <laughs> rather than degenerated. In the LP review section, the lead review is given over to remain in light by talking heads. Hey. And after Max Bell has banged on for ages about white Western artists pillaging African music, he decides it's dead good. An album of brave intentions and haunting textures. Safari, so good. <laughs> Danny Baker kicks off his review of Faces by Earth, Wind and Fire by pointing out how mint and skilled they've been, but this should be the last Earth, Wind and Fire LP before they, quote, explode into a super vacuum, as he believes that the funk baton is about to be snatched up by British bands. Links, Incognito and Light of the World are but the tip of the London Soul Iceberg, backed by a crazed and extremely sizable army of people desperate to do for funk what the Sex Pistols did for rock. Ooh, get ready for Shack Attack, Danny. <laughs> Boy! The debut LP by Ireland's new signings, U2, is drooled over by Paul Morley. I find Boy touching, precocious, full of archaic flourishes and modernist conviction, and genuinely strange. I love you too. You may worry about me loving you too. Don't. <laughs> it's not us who should be worried. Mm. I think Morley had a bit of a thing for Sting around the same time. Mm. It's really? weird. It is weird sometimes. Yeah, it's like as a critic, you're meant to do this, but sometimes you just can't quite tell the real shape of something when it's right in front of you. Do you know mm. what I mean? Sometimes it doesn't happen. You just you need a bit of distance before you can recognise that it's the shape of a penis. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny you should say that, um, um, Taylor. Alan Jones. I remember him telling a story about going out on a trip. Um, Paul Morley was one of the other journos on it. And I think Paul Morley had been a little bit disparaging about Sting, you know, a bit uncertain, et cetera, et cetera. But like Sting had like kind of sought him out and just like, you know, really disarmed him, you know, been utterly kind of charming. And you could see Paul Morley being kind of visibly disarmed, you know, by the whole thing and then kind of walking yeah. off in a kind of sort of flattered daze. And then Sting turning to Alan Jones and just saying, got him. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. No, it's I. I remember even when I was a kid, I remember being at Melody Maker and being able to see through that. I always thought that that there should be a sign above the door that says they're always quote really nice Oops. blokes. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's that's you, you've just got to see past that. Bob Edmonds listens to Making Movies, the new LP by Dire Straits, and thinks it's dead good, even though he knows the readership won't agree. None of it will appeal to rock revolutionaries whose heroes failed to scale the barricades in the late 70s. It's essentially dinosaur music, but extinction seems a remote possibility. Meanwhile, it's an uncredited coat down for organisation. The second LP by Orchestral Manoeuvres in the Dark, nine months after their debut. Whereas their debut was aimed magnificently and unashamedly at the bullseye of the new bubblegum, they now seem to be torn between the pop market that is so obviously their best bet and the dreary terrain of flat electronic doodling. <laughs> Julie Burchill listens to Trance and Dance by Martha and the Muffins and deems it a prime example of what's ramble about pop these days. 
It's small, with no big singers, no big tunes, no big looks, no big emotions, no big charm or sex appeal. Coming after punk, which had all those assets in abundance, it looks especially petty. (laughs) And Paul Morley lumps Killing Joke by Killing Joke and Greatest Hits Volume 2 by the Cockney Rejects together and fucking hates them both. (laughs) The former are parasites sucking all the goodness out of important musics while the latter are sprightly loony teen pop prats who should be appearing on the current daily star adverts alongside arthur mullard what a lot for tempe <laughs> a timeless observation in the gig guide well David could have seen the Stray Cats at the Woolwich Tram Shed, Atomic Rooster at the Marquee, Ozzy Osbourne's Blizzard of Oz and Budgie at Hammersmith Odeon, the Four Tops at the London Palladium, Scorpions at Hammersmith Odeon, or Chubby Checker at the venue in Victoria. But probably didn't. I certainly didn't. Taylor could have seen ACDC at Birmingham Odeon, UK subs at the Cedar Rooms, Simple Minds at the Cedar Ballroom, the Cockney Rejects at Digbeth Civic Hall, Bauhaus at Dudley JB's, or Captain Beefheart and his magic band supported by Comsat Angels at the Odeon. Well, the dock at the Radar Station Tour plays the Birmingham Odeon. Mm. Mm -hmm. Still a few tickets available. (laughs) (laughs) Quite a few, in fact. Neil could have seen the Pretenders at Coventry Theatre, or the Crusaders and Randy Crawford at Coventry Theatre, or nipped out to Walsall to see Johnny Ray at the Memorial Hall. Sarah could have seen UB40 at Leeds Polytechnic, Linton Quasi Johnson at Huddersfield Polair, Motorhead at Bradford St George's Hall, or the Jam, supported by the Piranhas, at Sheffield Top Rank. Al could have seen darts at Nottingham University, the Associates at the Boat Club, Gerald Kenner, Sheena Easton and Dennis Waterman at the Theatre Royal, fucking yes, or gone to Crispin Jumperland to see the Cords at Leicester University, or Hawkwind and Vardis at the De Montfort Hall. <laughs> Vardis. One of my memories of knocking around record shops around, I was at Fox Records in Vicky Centre, and I'm standing next to these two tubby blokes with their studded wristbands on. One of them, who was obviously the apprentice, pulled out a Vardis LP, and he turned round to the other bloke and said, oh, Vardis, what, what are they like then? Are they, are they heavy? And the other bloke, who was obviously a big wheel at the local rock sock just looked at him and just went very heavy (laughs) (laughs) so every time i see the word vardis in my mind i just go very very heavy heavy. (laughs) yeah well they're the one of the stars of uh calendar goes pop the richard madeley helmed uh short-lived show the one where shaked stevens attacks richard made they had a uh, an up-and-coming group on Every episode, and Vardis yeah. was one of them. And to be honest, they didn't sound very heavy. I don't know if that's because they set up in Kirkstall Road Studios, and uh, and it, the sound men there were not not really used to metal, you know. But no. it doesn't sound very good. And I just I looked at it. I thought, okay, two things. First of all, lead singer, that hair is not long for this world. Um, and no. secondly. They are surely called Vardis because they couldn't spell the Vardis out of Quo Vardis. Mm. <laughs> um, looked it up, both things true. <laughs> 
And Simon could have seen after the fire at Port Talbot Troubadour, anti-pandemonium at Swansea University, and fuck all else. <laughs> Poor lad. In the letters page, well, the burning issue this week is Julie Burchill's review of The River by Bruce Springsteen the other week, which she described as drudgery chic and great music for people who've wasted their youth to sit around drinking beer and wasting the rest of their lives too. Oh. You limey creeps at NME used to slag off Americans because our rock heroes sung about fast cars and swimming pools and didn't relate to the working classes, writes Joseph Heller. Yet when Birchall reviews the river, she tells us that the American working classes don't want to hear a rock star relating to their life. Looks like I've spotted a catch-22 situation. Uh, but yes, of course, a music paper is a monolith. Mm. Um, contrasting opinions expressed in that same paper years mm-hmm. apart uh, constitutes rank hypocrisy. <clears throat> Having read Melody Maker's unbelievably ecstatic review of The River, Julie Burchill's review was what I needed to bring me down from cloud nine, says Ziggy of Clyde Bank. But to term the musical theme as drudgery was wrong. The working class have two choices. Listen to music which is pure fantasy, such as heavy metal and pop, or listen to music which reflects reality, for example, the jam and joy division. So do you want us, Julie, to bury our heads in the sand of metal and be lost? Sand of metal. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, unlike all those jam and joy division Mm. fans who changed the world. (laughs) Oh, cheers again for Brexit. <laughs> Brian Mills of Edinburgh has a monk on about Andy Gill slagging off the new Joe Jackson LP. Whale oil beef hooked of Gosport. Asked for an article about the Green Party of West Germany. <laughs> DSC LSE of London comments on the recent specials riot in Cambridge by quoting John Bradbury of the band claiming that Coventry skins were some of the hardest there were and saying, Dear specials, you deserve everything you got. And irreverent tatty vagabonds of London say, if any skins cause trouble when the specials play for CND, nuke them. Mm. 68 pages, 25p. I never knew there was so much in it. So much fucking toya. Well, yeah. But I I mean, at this time, I I was absolute peak enemy reader. I was being kind of Mm. made by enemy at this point. And I actually remember... Um, certain little th- things that have been quoted here, I actually still remember them now, you know, like 40 years on. I mean, you know, that Paul Morley thing about, like, you two. Mm. Anybody give a shit? And I probably did at the time, you know. I mean, it was, but, you know, it, it wasn't just Morley at this point. Um, it was Ian Penman, it was Danny Baker, um, and Andy Gill, and each in a different ways. I mean, they were just, um, really, really sort of opening my eyes and my imagination to the prospect of being a music journalist that yeah. you could write in this I way. Gave and I was us de- you two and die straights well, yeah, right through yeah. the decade. Cheers, anyway. Yeah, I mean, yes, there was, there was all of that. And of course, you know, looking back at some of this now and some of the bits that are quoted, I mean, it's, it's pretty poor writing, a lot of it, really. It's just mm. poor imagery. It doesn't seem to be sort of thought through. It's not as witty as it thinks it is. But it made a great – it was almost the fact that it was being done at all, I think, at the time. You know, and even someone like Judy Birchall or whatever, you know, now you can just see it as just sort of trolling and clickbaiting and scattergun iconoclasm. But at the time, it all just seemed to be kind of, you know, sort of 
very exhilaratingly contrarian or whatever. And, um, and in fact, there hadn't really been anything previous to that kind of thing, you know, well done or badly done prior to her. So, uh, and to be fair to, to the writers of the enemy at the time and music journos in general, you know, there's not a lot of time to turn this shit around, is there? No, no. I mean, Julie Birchill, the poor cow, she's, she's sat there in an office with about mm. 30 records and she's got to say something about all of them. Mm. And she's got, X amount of time, which isn't that much. So, so she would also have had a pretty big bag of speed, I would have thought, which probably helped. <laughs> but yeah, it's one of those things that you don't really understand this until you're about 35. But people in their 20s can't write. Mm. I mean, you know, like apart from like Rambo, mm. who'd done it all already. But generally Keats. speaking yeah. nobody yeah but <laughs> nobody really yeah. nowadays is good it's one of those things it's writing is not like pop music or or being a, a sportsman or being a model or being a you know where you finish by 30 or 40 um writing is more like directing films or painting where you really are shit in your 20s you get good in your 30s mm. you peak in your 40s and 50s and that's a bit of a problem for music journalism and always has been. So what else was on telly this day? Well, BBC One commences at 9am with a three hour and 20 minute orgy of schools and colleges programmes and then closes down for 25 minutes. But then it comes back hard with the midday news, Pebble Mill at one and the episode of Mr. Ben where he gets to be a caveman. After you and me, it's more schools and colleges for a bit until they close down again for another 25 minutes. Then it's <laughs> Themen Lunneth Unnoy Navewe, a Welsh language programme which for some reasons is only available in English region areas, followed by regional news in your area, play school, touche turtle, Kenneth Williams reading Count Backwards on the carpet in Jackanore. Part 4 of Haida, entitled The Blind Grandmother. John Craven's news round, Blue Peter, and then Morph takes his pet nail brush to a dog show. After the news, it's nationwide, and they've just finished You Know What. Before I forget, I just want to point out what a time waster Mr. Ben is. I mean, you'd have thought the owner of that place, after about two or three episodes, would just Mm. be saying, like, behind the glass of a very hard shut door, fuck off, I'm trying to run a business here. He never buys anything, does he? No, he doesn't, no. Just turns in there, yeah, disappears for about 20, 25 minutes in the changing rooms, then comes out and says, no, I don't fancy it. (sighs) I mean, it used to really vex me, even as a child. He's got a sponge, the crotch of that caveman outfit now, that poor bloke. No, exactly, yeah. Also, I, I... Suspect that time is fairly short before someone twigs that there's something funny going on in that changing room. And, you know, <laughs> black helicopters arrive. And uh... <laughs> BBC Two kicks off at 11 for play school with Fred Harris and Floella Benjamin and then closes down for nearly three hours. Coming back with two hours of racing from Newbury and then whipping us over to the New London Theatre for the final match in Group 3 of the State Express World Challenge Cup of Snooker as Ireland take on Australia. After an open university module about preschool childcare, they close down again for 25 minutes, returning to the snooker for an hour and a bit. They're currently halfway through school's prom, featuring Long Riding's Junior School, the Leeds Youth Orchestra and the Stonely Youth Orchestra. 
ITV starts at 9.30 with schools and colleges programmes. Then it's Little Blue, the music and story show Stepping Stones looks at hairy things. Then it's the Sullivans, regional news in your area. The Nairi Dawn Porter and Ian Hendry Terminal Brain Tumour Love Series for Maddie with Love. Afternoon Plus, and then a repeat of Sending the Girls, the Elizabeth Sladen drama series about a sales team. After the practice, it's Windows, The Fantastic Four, Little House on the Prairie, The News at 5.45, Regional News in your area, then Iris Scott starts to stir the ship between Kevin and Glenda in Crossroads, something rural and boring happens in Emmerdale Farm, and they've just started the first episode of the Bridget Forsyth and Dougie Brown sitcom The Glamour Girls, about the exotic world of sales promotions. Mm. I'm glad you pronounced that as the um, the little arse on the prairie because that gave me a Proustian, um, yes, walk back to my school days because, you know, that was, uh, that that would have spoke depths to our, you know, to our senses of humour. Snooker's starting to kick in. Mm. Yeah, international snooker at that. The best kind. It became a big thing. The the year after this was Steve Davis in 1981 when he first arrived on the scene and I think that had a sort of galvanising effect. Of course, we all had colour tellies. I am actually old enough to remember um, watching snooker on black and white telly, pop black. Fuck. And, um, yeah, that... Uh, yeah, but, yeah, you're right. It was never the same until the electrifying presence of Steve Davis. Well, it genuinely is interesting. That's the damn thing. You know, everyone talks about the, how interesting Hurricane Higgins was. He was just a pisshead. You know, Steve Davis is in a magma. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that is, in fairness, the only thing anybody yeah, knows. Well, was, yeah. <laughs> magma. <laughs> I'm, yeah, I think someone that's into magma is, and is a snooker player is more interesting than somebody who's just a pisshead. But, but it's Steve Davis and Doyle out of the professionals, <laughs> who in one episode, uh, you see his record collection, and at the front is a magma wow. album. Oh. That's who listens to wow. magma. Uh. Steve Davis, Doyle out of the professionals, and people like that. <laughs> yeah. Well, chaps, I do believe that the table has been firmly laid for this episode of Top of the Pop. So we're going to stop there and we're going to come back tomorrow. So thank you very much, David Stubbs. There you go. God bless you, Taylor Parks. Sir. My name's Al Needham. See you tomorrow for part two. Until then, stay pop crazed. <laughs> <laughs> Chart music. Great big Hello, my name is Pete Ellison. This is Dave Cribb. Hello, and we do a podcast called Friends with Friends, as you might have guessed from the music that's playing underneath, uh, which is a sort of lo-fi rendition of the Friends theme tune for rights reasons. We get a different guest on every week on our podcast to talk about their favourite episode of Friends. And we look through it in excruciating detail. We pick through levels of plots like no one has ever done before. So if you like Friends or just listening to people talking, which are both valid activities, do look us up on the old podcast app and that friends with friends and we're on twitter at friends wf when you make decisions for your company you look for the no-brainers and if you have a lot of mailing to do stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. 
Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.